Thanks for listening to the podcast of First Alliance Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. For more information about our church or to watch a video recording of today's message, visit us online at facws.org. We're going to talk a little bit this morning about this idea of identity. I want you to turn your scriptures to Luke 6, starting in verse 27, where we were last week. But I want to give you a little bit of a broader context before I read what I'm going to read. You see, we've been talking about the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus, amongst the people who needed healing, the sick and the dying, the poor, the hungry, the needy, stops and speaks to his disciples especially about the values of his kingdom. It's different, as we've mentioned, from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus sits down on a mountainside and speaks to all the people that are gathered. Surely with the Sermon on the Plain, as Jesus speaks, many would hear, but the intention was to show his disciples what his kingdom would be amongst all the peoples. But you have to recall the people to whom Jesus was speaking. Jesus was Jewish. His audience was Jewish. His disciples all Jewish. The people that were around them were Jewish people. And to be Jewish meant to have a very strong and distinct identity. An identity shaped by millennia of being different than the people around them. They were a people who had gone into the promised land only after decades of wandering in the desert, only after being taken out and separated amongst the Egyptians, only after they had gone there because of famine. They came out of Egypt with a distinctiveness that is highly unusual. Why do I say it's unusual? Not because of any racist reason. We are not anti-Semitic in this church. But it was unusual because the Jews came into the promised land with a distinct faith that would not allow for any sort of syncretism. Other religions in that area, in the promised land in those days, would worship the gods of other people or worship their ancestors. The Jewish people had one God, Yahweh, and they worshipped Him alone. And with that distinct identity, they would, at God's instruction, drive out and destroy all the other nations, or at least they were supposed to have done that, and maintain a cultural and religious purity. They were to hate other gods and hate people that followed other gods. They were to cleanse the land. God would even use that word, clean the land of its impurities. To be Jewish meant to be in the promised land as a people apart, distinct. Not only that, it meant that blessing would come upon the Jewish people as a result of their fidelity or their faithfulness to God. And so as they are in the promised land and they are faithful to God, God would give them a land flowing with milk and honey. He would give them blessings of possessions and power of a kingdom with no end. And so there would be an open question for those who suffered, as the Pharisees would ask elsewhere in Scripture, to the man born blind, who sinned 
this man or his parents that he would be blind. In other words, to be poor, to be sick, to have need, to be a beggar on the side of the road was to be somebody who might have disobeyed God or came from a lineage of a family who disobeyed God, who didn't hold to the fidelity, to the faithfulness of being a Jew and having that distinct identity. To be Jewish was to be shaped both by a love of Yahweh but also a hatred of God's enemies. It was okay as a Jewish person to hate other nations, to rebel against them, to be angry when those other nations interfered or those people intermingled or their gods syncretistically were mingled with the name of Yahweh. Into that context, Jesus speaks, and hear what he has to say, because this is revolutionary, earth-shattering language. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend. Expect nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. These are deeply unsettling and difficult things that Jesus has said. As we discussed last week, we all, after all, are raised, even if we're not Jewish, with a kind of folksy understanding of the way things work. We see something that's wrong as a child and our heart breaks. I remember when I was a young man being in the car driving down the road and we came off the highway uh, at the off-ramp and there was a man begging by the side of the road, as we often see here in Winston-Salem. And I remember being in tears, literally weeping over seeing that man. I think he was missing a limb, if my memory serves me well. But then I remember as my childhood turned into young adulthood and into adulthood that I was conditioned to see those kinds of people differently. We can't just give them money, I was told, because they might just go buy drugs or alcohol. We can't just give them money, I was told, because if you give them what they're asking for, it won't be what they really need. What they really need is a change of their life. What they really need is the gospel. What they really need is to be trained, to be educated, to be taken elsewhere, to be transformed. 
Undoubtedly, there is great truth to that wisdom. And, and Jesus himself would talk about transformation and about redemption. But he also would say, give to everyone who begs from you. In those days, Jesus was living in an occupied state where the military would come and rule harshly. I believe that when he has this notion of turn the other cheek to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, there's a, there's a connection to what was happening in the country at that time where an occupying Roman rule would enforce vigorously and violently the peace. The Herods, who were the sub-rulers under Caesar of that area, were known as being violent men, and their leadership of the Roman guard was loose, to say the least. The Romans would enforce violently. We've seen on the television protesters be struck with pepper spray and, and, pepper spray and with shields and, and uh, with rubber bullets. In those days, it was swords and crucifixions. Heads left on pikes as a symbol of the violent control of the Roman authorities. We would say, as a country founded by rebellion, as a country which celebrates coming up July 4th, our independence, we would say that if an occupying force were to come to us and strike us on the cheek, we would stab them through the heart. We fight for our rights as Americans. Rights are foundational to our understanding of who we are as Americans. I have the right not to be struck on the cheek by policemen. I have the right that soldiers, it's written into our, what we would consider founding documents, the Bill of Rights. I have the right to not have soldiers be forcibly living in my home. I have the right that soldiers can't take my cloak or take my shirt or take my clothing so that they have enough to make it through the winter on their way to battle. That's part of our DNA. Against that, Jesus says, from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. This is radical, radical stuff. This calls into question all of our street smarts, our folksy wisdom, our understanding and seeing of the world. You see, we're all raised with an identity that is shaped by something that is contrary to this. We're all raised with an identity that is foundational to our being. And one of the keys to that foundational identity is self-preservation. Every culture, whatever culture you are from, whether it's an American Southern Christian culture, whether you're from the Northeast, whether you're from the Midwest, whether you're white, whether you're black, whether you're South Asian, East Asian, whether you're Central American or South American, you have received a culture that somewhere at its core essence is self-preservation. 
Why do I say that? Why do I know it is true? Because self-preservation is the only thing which allows cultural identities to be passed down. If a culture doesn't have at its core some essence of self-preservation, it will be wiped off the map. If America had no army, there would be no America. And that's the case for every government in the world, every culture in the world. If my family didn't have some sense of keeping my things protected, then I would have impoverished children. If I gave my money to everybody who asked me for money, then I would be poor myself, a beggar on the streets myself. Not only that, every one of us is part of our culture. Whatever your culture might be has some bit of the hatred of others. Every one of us is steeped in some sort of identification of other cultures as being other or less than and therefore needing to be hated in order to protect my cultural identity. This is not to attack one particular culture or another, although each culture might hold that in high regard or in lower regard, but it is a part of who we are. As a child, you grow up hearing your parents or your family talk about people that have wronged them. Some of you might have cultural lineages or family lineages that hold hatreds that go back decades. It could be that you hate the Methodists across the street. It could be that you hate the Smiths because the Smiths in 1925 ran over one of your cows and my goodness, they never paid for it. They just dragged it to the side of the road until the crows ate it. And we're going to get that blood money. It could be as an American that you've been taught to hate certain other countries or other peoples. Or as a Christian, to hate people from other religions. Hatred becomes a not-so-subtle part of our identity. One of the ways that I know that hatred is important is so often we rally our support behind individuals in public, not on the basis of what they love, but on the basis of who they hate. We elect people who represent us because of who they hate. They hate the right people, we might say, and therefore I'm okay with them. I might not agree with all of their policies. I might not agree with their personality, but they hate who I hate. I've heard that from many people in the past couple of weeks. Jesus against that says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. What Jesus is trying to say is that he is going to enact a radically different kingdom than the cultures that fill the world to this day. He is going to create for himself a people who look and act weird. 
are almost unintelligible because they're not so interested in self-preservation. They don't need to build wealth because they have inherited a kingdom imperishable and the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. They don't bear grudges. They don't hate the right people. As a matter of fact, they're defined by love. Jesus would go on to say in his sermon to his disciples at the Lord's table, right before he would die, that his people would be known by their love. He's creating a radically new kind of person. And the difficulty that you're going to encounter and that I encounter is that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Jesus, is always going to come into conflict with our human cultures, our institutions, our countries, and our ideals. Always. That is not to say that we have to totally abandon and eradicate and hate everything by which we were raised. Jesus doesn't say hate your culture. He doesn't say hate being American. He doesn't say hate being raised in the South. He doesn't say hate being white or hate being black or hate being Central American or hate being South American or East Asian or South Asian or Russian or whatever. He doesn't say hate that. What he's saying is, is you've learned this as part of your culture. Question it and compare it to my kingdom. Which is the one that you will follow? Are you going to hate all the right people or are you going to love others, even your enemies, the way that I have shown you how to love? Are you going to cling fast to all of your stuff so that you can build your kingdom and your family's wealth? Or are you going to hold all of your stuff lightly and look for the good in others, even those that look different from you, even those that are poor, even those that are unbathed, the unwashed, and the other cultures that you might not love instinctually? Are you going to get back at the people that you were taught to get back at? Or are you going to sacrifice yourself? Are you going to spend all your days fighting for your rights? Or are you going to thank God that you inherited those rights and use them to bless others? It's not as though we lack an example in this, my beloved friends. Love your enemies, do good, lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. You might say, what are you saying, Pastor? Are you saying that if I'm a conservative, i got to go love a liberal person? Aren't I allowed to hate them? Or if I'm a liberal, that I'm not allowed to hate the conservatives? Or... What are you saying, Pastor? I, I got to love people from Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, these countries which have sponsored terrorists that have come and attacked my people. I'm not saying it. Jesus is saying it. Love those who curse you, who hate you, who persecute you on account of my name, Jesus would say. And he would live it. 
Turn in your scriptures to Luke 23, verse 34. You can't understand what Jesus has said without getting to the cross. Let me back up a little bit to verse 26. It says, And as they led him away, they seized a Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of the women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. But weep for yourselves and for your children. Behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. For they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? We'll come to that when we reach Luke 23 in the next year or two or three or four. But two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That is this word of Jesus in the Sermon on the Plain, reaching its conclusion, its perfect fleshing out, so to speak. Jesus did not just endure the cross. He did not just endure the whippings and the beatings. He did not just silently take the words of the rulers when they slandered him before the people. He was not just silent when the Roman ruler would ask him questions to his face. All those are true. He would not just endure the nails being put through his hands and feet without argument or complaint, though he was the king of heaven. Jesus would actively bless those that were doing that violence. That's how radical this is. Jesus isn't just saying, when you see that beggar, give him a coin. He's saying, when you see that beggar, if you really want to be like me, be prepared to lay your life down for him. He's not just saying when somebody steals your cloak, give them your shirt as well. He's saying be prepared to lay down your life for that thief. He's not just saying when you're beaten and abused, think nice thoughts about the abuser. He's saying be prepared to lay your life down for that person. Take everything that you were taught about self-preservation and throw it to the wind and take up your cross and follow me. And you might say, well, that's well and good for Jesus. He, he's God and he's blessing the people that put him on the cross. That takes God himself 
Don't you know who lives in you if you know God? God lives in you. The Holy Spirit lives in you. The same Spirit which empowered Christ to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, is the Spirit that lives in you. And you might say, well, yeah, but Jesus had to die so that our sins could be forgiven. What if we had to die so that others would see that their sins have been forgiven? The disciples had to die martyrs' deaths for the sake of the gospel. The early church would be harassed, beaten, and destroyed so that the gospel would be spread from nation to nation. Paul himself would say, my life is being poured out like a drink offering. Paul would talk about beatings and shipwrecks, about near deaths and about executions. What about Stephen, who had to die stone by stone so that Saul could become Paul, the great apostle of our faith? Some of us right now are clinging so hard to our cultures and to our rights and to our upbringing, to the things that we think we know by folksy tradition by how we were raised, the kingdom of Christ is going to come into conflict with every one of those things and ask you to reevaluate every one of those things. And the question is, my beloved friends, are you listening? Are you prepared to give up that which you cling to most tightly, whatever it might be? Maybe it's the money that you've scraped together. Maybe it's the pride with which you cling to your identity. Maybe it's your self-preservation and you're ready to kill anyone before they kill you. Whatever it is, it's got to go to the cross. It's got to be let go and be given to God. Anything less is to say, Jesus, I just want your forgiveness. I don't want to follow Jesus, I want your blessings, but I don't want to serve. I want your love, but I don't want your life. I want what you can give me. I don't want you. Because Jesus was not just Savior. He was King. He was Lord. He wanted to create a new identity in you. He would go on to say to his disciples, lay down your lives. Paul would go on to say, your citizenship is in heaven. And Christians would go on to be called by a new name, the way. Or even the word Christian, which means lover of Christ, used as slander by other people when they saw Christians. Why? Because Christians were weird. They were different. In early Rome, the Christians would fish abandoned babies out of the trash and raise them as their own because they loved them, because they were taught by the way of Jesus to love the least and the lost. 
Christians would bow their necks without fighting and allow themselves to be beheaded for the cause of Christ. They would sell their clothing and their belongings to share with those who had need. They would count it all as lost for sake of pursuing the glorious name of Jesus Christ to receive, if even a little bit, some of the treatment that their Savior had received. Folks, have we lost that identity, dear Christian? Would you be known as weird by anybody else in this world? Or are you just Christian enough to feel saved but not Christian enough to be different? Take that question home with you today. Take it to the cross. Look at Christ up there and what it cost him for your sins and ask, would I be willing to follow him to there? Do I love him so much that I'd be willing to follow him there? And then look at your identity and your culture and everything with which you were raised and baptize it. Find a way to put it in submission to Christ and Him crucified. And if you don't know that kind of radical discipleship, that radical following, now is the time to respond. To email me, to text me, to say, I'm ready to follow Jesus not ready to just be a fan, not just ready to receive his blessings and his benefits. I'm ready to follow him, to be different, to look different. I'm ready for people to see me as being weird, as being off kilter because, yeah, I was raised a certain way. Don't you know Jesus was raised a certain way? All of his family and friends would be flabbergasted by him. We know this Jesus guy. We knew his father. What is wrong with him? Are you ready for people to say that about you? If you are, let's do this thing. Let's be Christians in the world. Let's be different. Let's not let our behaviors and our words be dictated by the world around us or by cultural identities that are shaped by self-preservation and by winning and by conflict and by battle. Let our identities be, be shaped by the one who would go and say, Father, forgive them, the soldiers who kill me, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them. Let us be mocked. Let us be beaten. Let us have our rights stripped away, but for knowing the glorious cause of Jesus Christ, if that's what it takes. That's the radical discipleship that changes the world when our identity is in Christ. If you're ready for that, let's talk. Let's pray. Jesus, everything that is in me wants to water down these words. Everything in me wants to water this down, to spiritualize it. Everything that is in me wants to just say, yeah, but, yeah, you say to give away my shirt, but I have the right to protect myself. Yeah, you say to give away to beggars, but I don't know where that money's going to go. You say, yeah, I love your enemies, but my enemies are so worth hating. They've done so much wrong. Lord Jesus, convict me of such 
foolish unrighteousness. You had every right to strike down every single person who dared touch you. With your infinite holiness and your majesty and your power, you had every right in the world to exert your authority as king of the universe. But instead you went to the cross to gather for yourself a people who would bear your name from every tribe and tongue and kingdom and nation. And then tell them to be like you, not to fight on your behalf, not to battle, not to draw swords, not to win with bloodshed, unless it was to win with our own shed blood as we yielded ourselves to those who would persecute us. Lord, this text ends with, be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Lord, as we consider those that we were taught to hate, that our hearts want to hate, we have to remember that we, because of our sins, have every right to be hated by God, to be his enemies, to be wiped clean from the map. And if we think that we have a right to hate those that we have been taught to hate, if we think that we have the right to wreak vengeance on those that we think we ought to wreak vengeance on, if we are happy when other people hurt people that we hate, then we are saying, yes, Lord, pour out your wrath on me. Hate me, Lord God, for I am deserving of every ounce of your hatred. But instead, Lord God, you showed mercy. Instead of your wrath, you gave us your salvation. How can we give anything less to our enemies? Let us repent. I love you, Lord God. In your name.